Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. This is a most interesting and unique psalm in the Psalter of Israel because in so many ways its uniqueness is borne out in the fact that while it is a royal psalm, a psalm that extols the king of Israel, whoever this king might be, it's also a wedding psalm. This is talking about a royal wedding. And who doesn't love a royal wedding? There are multiplied millions of people who, when there is especially a British royal wedding, there are these millions who want to tune in to, to capture every single element and nuance of this British royal wedding, including, of, co- of course, the vast majority of those viewers being female because they want to see the dress, they want to hear the music, they want to take it all in. And this is really, in so many ways, no different because this is a wonderful celebratory event, Psalm 45. It begins this way, to the choir master, according to lilies, a maskal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness or uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes, and cassia. From ivory places, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes she has led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. 
I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Now, maybe, just maybe, in your mind's eye, you can see a wedding. It's very, very clear, isn't it? There are things that are said to the king, the king groom, and there are things that are said to the queen, the queen bride. And really, if you wanted to break up this psalm in outline form, you could see verses 1 to 9 as something that is said to or about the king, the groom. And then in verses 10 to 15, you have likewise some things that are said to or about the bride, the queen, the queen-to-be. And then you have what we might say in verses 16 and 17 uh, is the benediction, the idea of a wish prayer that this king would rule forever. And what I'd like to do tonight, maybe in sort of a brief fashion, is to walk you through this particular psalm, however so briefly, and then to be able to give you a stunning declaration about whom this king might be. So let's talk first about the king, the groom, beginning in verse 1 and running, as I said, down through verse 9. Now, we don't know exactly who might be saying this in the first couple of verses, but of course, it could be the choir master, uh, the one who is leading this triumphant song, could be his voice, as it were, uh, could be one of the sons of Korah. Uh, those were those who were uh, positioned to lead the choir in their singing or to pronounce this particular psalm. Of course, it's a song, uh, but it's also a declaration. It's also something in which they prayed through and they sung it. And they did a lot of things with these psalms. And clearly, this is also a prayer based upon the fact that the last two verses are a benediction. So we don't know exactly who is saying this, but we do know that this is an entirely festive occasion. This is a blessing. This is a, this is a great anthem of praise to God because it appears that from Psalm 45, God is allowing there to be some level of peace in Israel. There doesn't appear to be, like of course we saw from Psalm 44, to be Israel at war. It doesn't appear to be that way. It appears that there is a new king who has been coronated at some point, and now he's taking his bride to himself. And here's what is declared about him. Verse 1, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. And what theme is that, Mr. Narrator? I address my verses to the king. In other words, he's speaking directly to the king, and he wants to let the king know what the people of Israel think about him. He says, my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. He, he wants to write something very wonderful. He wants to then proclaim that, that written word, into a speech, into a declaration. Who knows, this might even be something that if we were to experience a wedding like this, this might be something even that the best man might say. I want to talk about the groom. I want to talk about the king. And here's what he says, verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. His, his very look, 
I'm sure it's a regal look, a royal look. And then he says, grace is poured upon your lips. The king speaks very graciously when he does so. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. And what you're going to find in this psalm is several mentions of this idea, and that's why we called it a a wish prayer, that they're asking that this God of Israel bless this king and this people forever and ever through the king's rule. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. And then, of course, because there's always the threat of war, verse 3, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, speaking again of the king, in your splendor and majesty. Look the part when you're going to war. Make sure you have everything ready. Gird that sword. Make it sharp. Make it ready for when the battle comes, and assuredly it will. Verse 4, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause, not just simply a winning battle, but for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. This is what the king stands for, right? Any king who is worthy of being called with such a name is a person who wants to rule with truth and with meekness, with humility and with righteousness. Let your right hand, the the hand of power, the hand of authority, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp, verse 5 says, in the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. In other words, when this particular king goes out to battle, whenever that takes place, he's got a sword that has been girded, his arrows are sharp, and the peoples, the enemies for whom he is battling against with his army, they fall under him in captivity. This is, this is all of the stuff that a king does. This is all the responsibility that a king has. He makes rules. He makes laws. He protects. He guards. He does everything for his people. And when his people are threatened with war, he has to have a girded sword. He has to be the mighty one. His arrows have to be sharp. And the peoples are to be protected because that king is defeating their foes. And then verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, don't be alarmed at such a statement. Did you know that there are other characters in the Bible who were said to be gods? Moses was said to be a god in the sense that while he is a human being, the idea of being a god meant not that he was divine necessarily, but that he was in charge, that he was mighty, that he had a full thrust of authority upon not only his foes, but upon even his people. So the idea here is that whoever this king is, he's God's representative. He, he answers not only to God, but when you turn it around in the other way, it is God who is as This king is his representative speaking through him to the people. In other words, I am God's representative on the earth. So he may be called 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness or righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. And do you see in verse 6, he's called a God, this king himself. But in verse 7, he answers to the God, the great God, God, your God, and he has anointed you. How so? With the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. And this may give us a sense in verse 8 of how he's beginning now, this narrator, to describe the wedding itself. I mean, any man who is in this kind of regalia, any kind of king who is in charge of his people, and they are celebrating this king at the place of his wedding, he has to look really good. Really good. And the fragrance of myrrh and aloes and cassia, from ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. In other words, of course, at any wedding, there's great music. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. Here are some of the guests, some of those who are coming to celebrate, maybe even from uh, several other countries who are not at war with Israel, but possibly they come even as the representatives, the daughters of kings, and they are invited as guests and they come as those of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Now, this is where it gets interesting because, frankly, at most weddings that you and I attend, the groom is, uh, he's there, he's around, but we all know who it's really for, right? We're not dummies, we understand. And now it's the bride queen, verse 10. This is as I read it, probably something, again, which is communicated to this queen bride, maybe while she's still in her chambers and before she makes her entrance, and maybe there are things that are said again to or about her so that she can be ready as she walks out in the processional. Here's what it says, verse 10, Hear, O daughter, and consider... And incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. In other words, it's time to be in the home of another. It's time to be with the king groom. And the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Now I know, I know. This is centuries... um, before Christ. This is uh, way back when, and today we probably wouldn't say for matters of propriety, your husband is your Lord, bow to him. But don't forget, this is the king. This is the king. And he actually is in charge, and he actually is Lord, and he's referred to as God in verse 6, so he is God's representative, and so it might be a good idea, even if you were the queen bride, to bow to him. Verse 12, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Now, this may very well be a comment that 
There are others who are, again, a part of the wedding party, and maybe they're coming with all of their gifts. And maybe they want to curry favor with the king, and maybe they want to, like these uh, ladies that are referred to in verse 9, maybe they're all coming as these invited guests, bringing their gifts, so that this can be a most momentous occasion. And then perhaps this is the bride queen coming in, verse 13, all Glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king. I can just see it now. This is amazing. And her virgin companions, the Bible says, following behind her. The the train of this particular dress must be miles, miles. And here, her companions, her friends, her sisters, as it were, they are helping her be as beautiful as she can be. Verse 15, with joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. You say, well, it's kind of short shrift that she doesn't get as many verses as the king does. Well, remember, the king, he's in charge, he's got all the authority, and being a short psalm and being a song itself, we are stunned by her beauty, and there's frankly probably not a lot of other things to say. We are captivated with her beauty. And of course, then the benediction, the narrator says this, verse 16, in place of your father's shall be your sons. In other words, the perpetuity of your reign. Because, of course, like all human beings, a king will die and he needs to be replaced. And so, therefore, in place of the fathers shall be the the sons, the princes. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. And there's that idea like verse 2 again, forever and ever. The idea is the kingdom reign of the Jews is to be forever and ever. The king is to be reigning even through his sons forever and ever. As I said, we don't necessarily know who this particular king of Israel is, but we do know this. This is a royal wedding of all weddings. This is, this is wonderful. Now, having sort of walked through you through this psalm, here's something that is most interesting. And let me take just a moment or two to explain something. When we interpret the Bible and we are looking especially at the psalms, which, by the way, are the most oft-repeated Old Testament passages in all of the New Testament. The Psalms are the most oft-repeated Psalms, passages, verses, allusions of any other Old Testament book in all of the New Testament. And so, when you read a particular Psalm like this, as you should with every other Psalm, you should ask the question, is is there any allusion, perhaps, to something greater, someone greater? Now, maybe a future king, 
Maybe someone who is a future king in the Davidic line, of course. We already know that 2 Samuel chapter 7 says that there will be a king. There will be a king in Israel. And that king in Israel will reign forever. And that there will be no end to his dominion. And of course we know that so many of these psalms were authored by King David. And we know how powerful he was and we know how prominent he was, especially even here in these psalms. We know how beloved he was as Israel's king. We know, of course, about Solomon. We know, of course, about others like King Josiah. Of course we do. So who might this be referring to? Well, like, for instance, in Psalm 22. That's what we commonly call a messianic psalm. We call Psalm 22 that, for instance, because in Psalm 22, when you read several selections, you find that those statements, those few selected statements that we could find, if we were to go back to Psalm 22, maybe you can listen to that message again, you would find that several of those are actually the very words spoken by Jesus Christ on the cross. And do you also realize that there is a portion of Psalm 45 that is explicitly referenced in the New Testament referring to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ? In Psalm 45, the the, the wedding song, the the, the royal gathering, uh, a, a marriage? I didn't know Jesus was married. Well, he wasn't, of course. Remember, these psalms and either their allusions or their explicit mention in the New Testament takes sometimes a portion of such a psalm and makes it refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. I say make it refer because, in fact, sometimes when you and I are reading these psalms, we seem not to be able to make a connection at all until, of course, we come to the New Testament and we find out that the New Testament writers certainly do. And they do so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I think there are three passages, two of them explicit, one more implicit, in our New Testaments that speak to us from either allusions or directly from Psalm 45. You want to see where they are? Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. Here is the most explicit. The book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Chapter 1. This is one of those texts from our New Testament Bible that tells us that Jesus Christ is being referred to in Psalm 45. Now, not everything in Psalm 45 is written about the Christ. There are things written, of course, as I alluded to in Psalm 22, that aren't about the Christ. But when the New Testament writers, like this writer to the Hebrews, says explicitly, this is that, we need to take note. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we find, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 1, these words, long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Stop there. Now you have in the first four verses some amazing statements about God the Son. You have, of course, Statements about the fact that he, in these last days or latter days, has spoken to us, has God, by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, I think that's rather interesting that he's been appointed as the heir of all things because that language has the language of kingship, doesn't it? That's the language of kingship. Verse 3 says, He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature, of God's nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's interesting, that's um, present tense. Not he upheld the world by the word of his power, but that he does so even now. This is the work of the Son. This is the character of the Son. And of course, This is the salvation brought by the Son after making purification for sins. That was His work on the cross. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now it bears mentioning that one of the reasons that the writer to the Hebrews is having to give an apologetic, a defense of God the Son, is because in this time, especially with the Jews, they had a great fascination with angels. And they believed that angels were not only wonderful beings, but also very powerful beings. In fact, so powerful that perhaps they needed to be worshipped. And do you know that the polemic of the entirety of the book of Hebrews is raised around the fact that Jesus Christ is greater? Jesus Christ is greater. And one of the polemical defenses that the writer of the book of Hebrews, which is actually a sermon, by the way, this is really the only full sermon, or at least as full as we believe it is, maybe it was longer, but perhaps even with its 13 chapters, this is a sermon that was preached. It's very possibly the fullest sermon that we have in our New Testaments that is a message from beginning to end. And the very first thing that the writer to Hebrews does is that he wants to make a case that Jesus Christ is superior to angels. He says that explicitly in verse 4, having become as much superior to angels... He makes that case. You don't worship angels. If you're, a, if you're a believer of Jewish descent, you worship Jesus Christ because he is much superior to angels. And he has a greater name, a higher name than they do. 
His name is more excellent than theirs. And then he proves it by a series of Old Testament texts in which the writer to the Hebrews says, I'm referring, as these Old Testament texts are, to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels? Now he's putting it in in a question format. In other words, I dare you, I challenge you to, with me, ask the question, who's greater than Jesus Christ? Who's greater? Are angels greater than Jesus Christ? Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? What What an amazing statement, right? This is is quite incredible. Psalm 2-7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, someone might say, well, wait a minute. I know that in the Bible, including in the Old Testament, angels were called sons. All right. Listen to what he says again. He says, or again... I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, you might look in vain for references of the Father, God the Father, calling the angels his sons in the sense that he is their father. He is their ruler. He is their king. But maybe you're not convinced. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels, what? Worship Him. And most decidedly, as a funnel coming down in principle, He's making the case that there is to be no angel who is to be worshipped. And so, He's not finished. Verse 7, of the angels, He says... He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. In other words, that's the duty of an angel. Uh, He makes them winds and his ministers are a flame of fire. That's what they do for God, for God the Father. Notice the contrast, verse 8. But of the Son, he, that's God, God the Father, but of the Son, he says, are you ready for Psalm 45, 6 and 7? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. That's an explicit reference, my friends, to the deity of of Jesus Christ. You say, how so? I thought you said in Psalm 45, it calls the king who was a human being, whether it was David or whoever it might have been, that he wasn't divine, but he was in the place of God. He was God's representative on the earth. Uh, Maybe that's all that it says here. Now, remember that the argument for the book of Hebrews is that The writer is making a case that Jesus Christ is in fact divine, that he's greater, he's more superior even than angels, and the entirety of the book bears this out. And from the very beginning, 
he says, But of the Son of the Lord Jesus Christ, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. I wish we had time to work our way through this particular passage and cross-reference that passage with other passages in our New Testaments that give us the sense that Jesus Christ is no mere man. We don't have that time. But if we did, you would see that this is one of these pinnacle verses in our New Testaments that pledges beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is not just a man, but God Himself. Here's a side note. This is a verse that I shared with my mother for several years who being a Jehovah's Witness always figured out a way or so she thought to get out of affirming that Jesus Christ is God. And I remember very clearly that there was one time, I trust because of the weight of this kind of evidence, that she kept reading this and reading this and reading this and saying, finally, I've never seen that before. I've never seen that before. It does, in fact, appear to say that God the Father is calling Jesus, the Son, God, who is forever and ever. And this is Psalm 45. So right out of a, a royal wedding, there is an inspired reference by this inspired writer who takes Psalm 45, 6 and 7, and says, this is an argument that says that Jesus is greater than angels. And why is He greater than angels? Because He is their God. Verse 10, and, in other words, He's not finished yet, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Remember back to the first couple of verses of chapter 1? You're the one who upholds the world by the word of your power. Here, the Lord, laying the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed but you are the same and your years will have no end. The argument of this first chapter with all of these Old Testament references is Jesus is greater, Jesus is higher, Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is creator. Verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Psalm 110. Which, by the way, I said a moment ago that there is no more oft-repeated verses, passages in all of the Old Testament than the Psalms in the New Testament, and there's no more oft-repeated psalm itself than Psalm 110. Psalm 110, several times mentioned in the New Testament. Why? Because it's so perfect for the affirmation that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh And that when he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high, he will in fact make all of his enemies a footstool for God the Father's feet. This is amazing. And this is why, beloved friends, this is why we should in fact go through the Psalms. This is why we should connect forever and a day our Old Testament to the New Testament. 
That's why I think it's so very profitable to have a kind of Bible where you are seeing little letters in a cross-reference in the margin so that you can see those letters and you can go to those passages. Now, it's not inspired. Maybe there's a time where you're looking at a little M in the margin and you follow the M to the place where it's giving you a reference and you read that reference and you say, I don't get that. Well, it's not inspired, but it sure is helpful. It sure is helpful. And what's helpful here is that the entirety of Hebrews chapter 1 and right in the middle is a declaration of Psalm 45. So you go back to Psalm 45 and say to yourself, there is a reference to Jesus Christ in Psalm 45. Therefore, in some way, Psalm 45 is messianic. In some way. Here's an allusion. Look over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We're almost done. Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, this is a, a very, very amazing scenario that Jesus is presenting via Dr. Luke. And in verse 16 of Luke 4, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, of course, that text in Isaiah is referring to a future liberator. And, of course, the Jews thought that it was going to be one in their number. At times, they even thought that it was going to be the whole of the Jewish nation. That's why at times, when you get to the latter part of the book of Isaiah, and you hear this, this concept of the Lord's servant, it's sometimes referring to the whole of Israel. And sometimes it's referring, it appears, as one man. And here's what Jesus does. He's coming as a man of Nazareth, he comes into the temple, he reads this scroll, and according to verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. This is a very, very poignant theme, poignant scene. Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now notice the first comment they make, verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now did you realize that that's actually an allusion to Psalm 45:2? You remember when we read it? You are the most handsome of the sons of men. 
grace is poured upon your lips. This is, this is Luke 4.22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were pouring forth from his lips. This is an allusion again to the Lord Jesus. Now we would assume, here's the Lord, he takes the Isaiah scroll, he reads from it, he sits down, they dialogue with him and he says, and this has been fulfilled in your hearing right now. And they seemingly respond very positively. Look at the gracious things that are coming from his mouth. And notice at the end of verse 22, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? In other words, we understand he's Jewish. We understand that he's a teacher. We understand that teachers get up and read scrolls. We understand all of that. But what about this part where he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing right now in this place? In other words, it's beginning to dawn on them. Is he saying that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, Jesus, Joseph's son? Is is God Almighty, Yahweh God, anointing him to proclaim good news to the poor? And is he sending this man, Jesus of Nazareth, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? Can it be so? Wait a minute. This guy's just like us. We know who his father is. And then you can begin to see not only the doubt, but even the derision. Verse 23, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. In other words, God's not dealing with the Jews because they're all stiff-necked and obstinate, but he did reach out to a Gentile woman. And boy, is their ire up. And there were many lepers, Jesus goes on to say, in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Uh, 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 Yet a second example. And then, of course, here's what they do, verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, rage. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off down the cliff But passing through their midst, he went away. Initial excitement. Here's here's the man that speaks with such a gracious lip. Oh, and by the way, you men are stiff-necked and you won't bow the knee to me or anyone else and you don't even see that God the Son has come into your midst. He's gracious, all right. And those gracious words were 
falling from his mouth, and they should have repented, and they didn't. But I think that's a strong allusion to Psalm 45 too. Here's the last one. Revelation 19. Revelation 19. You say, what does this have to do with Psalm 45? Well, in a sense, not much. But it is, it is a marriage supper. Psalm 45, we, we presume that after the king and queen were married, there was a grand celebration, right? There were more than just hors d'oeuvres there. This was kill the fatted calf time. And you know, there's going to come a day when the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom Psalm 45, 6 and 7 alludes, explicitly so in Hebrews 1, implicitly so in Luke 4, and here's what's going to happen. Look at Revelation 19, 6. Here's a marriage supper. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This is another wedding. This is another royal wedding. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Maybe this is... Not a wedding, but an after party. Verse 9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know, there's a true fact of Psalm 45. And it is that Jesus is that one who is God forever and ever. And his throne is forever and ever. And this one who speaks Isaiah's prophecy and who fulfills it in their hearing. And he did, in fact, set the captives free. And he did, in fact bring sight from the blind, and he does, in fact, at the end of time, conduct his own marriage supper. And he is, in fact, Jesus Christ the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Have you been invited? I know you've already received the invitation. Every one of us have. And we receive the invitation graciously and gladly. And we await this one who is God himself, whose ancestry is forever, and who ultimately carries on his own marriage supper, the very marriage supper of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
This is a great supper. It's a, it's a party. It's a party that's connected to a, a wedding. And we are rejoicing and exulting. And we're giving you the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And she was clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. And that means this fine linen that only those who are invited to this marriage supper are those who are righteous. And that's what Psalm 45 tells us, that there's a truth and a meekness and a righteousness with which the King of all kings conducts His kingdom. And we are His subjects if we believe in Jesus Christ. If we follow Him, we've our whole life dreamt about being at this marriage supper. The whole of our Christian life has been built around what a day that shall be. We pray, Heavenly Father, that there is no one here who refuses such an invitation, but they will not only receive and believe, but in this invitation... They will wear fine linen and we will be joined to our groom, the very Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. We praise Him. We rejoice and exult in Him because truly it has been said of Him both now and in eternity, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. We pray in His name. Amen.